0: Thank you Delta K, a Arakul Bunjalung woman, for welcoming us to country. Delta is a long-term supporter of Byron Writers' Festival. I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast series featuring writers from the 2021 Festival lineup. These conversations were due to take place live in Byron Bay in August, but have been recorded digitally instead. In this session, Sophie Hardcastle talks with Emily Brugman about Below Deck, which is available for purchase from the bookroom at Byron.com.
1: Hello, and welcome to this Byron Writers' Festival podcast. My name is Emily Brugman. I'm a writer and staff member at Byron Writers' Festival. I'm delighted today to be speaking with Sophie Hardcastle, author, artist, screenwriter, and scholar. Sophie's novel, Below Deck, has sold in eight territories and will be translated into six languages. Sophie is also the author of a YA novel, Breathing Underwater, and the memoir, Running Like China. They are also the co-creator of the Australian online series, Cloudy River. Welcome, Sophie. Thanks so much for having me, Emily. Thanks for being with us today. Sophie, could you please begin by telling us briefly what your book is about?
2: Yeah, of course. I think also I would just like to say that I am calling in today from Bundjalung country um, and wish to acknowledge and pay my respects to the traditional owners of this country, past, present and emerging. Um, Yeah, I feel very grateful to be on Bundjalung country now. My book, Below Deck, sort of charts the 20s of a young girl called Olivia. And it takes her across three continents and four oceans. We follow her working on yachts um, across the South Pacific. And she has something rather awful happen to her while she's at sea. And the book is about the ramifications of this trauma um, and in particular, how trauma lives on in our bodies.
1: Sophie, where did the character of Ollie come from? Is she... Very closely modelled on yourself, and I was also wondering: Are you a sailor?
2: My parents were professional sailors, um, so yeah, I had spent a fair amount of time at sea as a child. And then, in order to research this book, did two yacht deliveries um, down the east coast of Australia, like through the Coral Sea. And so, yeah, I think my entire life has sort of pivoted around the ocean or the ocean has been a central theme to yeah to my entire life and so both of my first two books were very closely tied to the ocean um and in particular surfing and I felt like when I went to write this book that I wasn't <laughs> quite ready to set something you know inland or in a landlocked area um, and so I thought well if I'm not in the ocean Olivia can be on the ocean um, and so that was yeah that was kind of why this book I think centred around the sea. Also so much of what the book talks about is sexual violence and the ramifications of that and I think that the myths that sustain and prop up rape culture on land they're often swept under the rug um, and at sea these myths they become impossible to possible to escape and the sort of hard truths of them come up, and so I thought that writing a book, you know, in a post-me to context would be most interesting and felt most acutely at sea because the reality is the boat becomes your whole world, and there is nowhere to go and um, nothing else to face rather than the hard truth of
1: this. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're saying. This is a contained world in which everything that takes place is kind of amplified.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think that kind of operates in the book as a um, a microcosm, for much broader macro um, sort of things that are operating in society at large and on this tiny little boat in the middle of the South Pacific, all of those Mm -hmm. um, tensions are brought to a head. And I think also when something goes wrong on a boat, it tends to go very wrong, very dramatically um, and very quickly. And so I was interested in kind of looking at a Lord of the Flies type situation and how that would change if a woman was involved. I think Olivia is, I mean, I think with all of my writing, I draw a lot of personal experience, but um, it's interesting because Olivia comes from an incredibly wealthy family. And I originally set out to to write a book about climate change um, and then wanted to speak about violence of bodies and in particular sexual violence as kind of an extended metaphor for our relationship, certainly in Western societies with the non-human and the exploitation of non-human bodies and also the exploitation of human bodies, you know, with imperialism and colonisation around the world. And so this book, I think Ollie even though, she, you know, parts of her and parts of the experiences that she faces definitely stem from personal experience. I think her as a character, I wanted her to stand for, yeah, kind of this, like, big, wealthy, exploitative um yeah I wanted to stand for something much bigger and be um kind of emblematic or or representative of social powers that are exploiting other bodies
1: and I wonder how you see the sea represented in this book Sophie is the sea a dangerous place is it a place of solace or is it something in between
2: I think it's all of those things like I think you know, many things can be true at once and the sea for me has always been a site that has the potential to drown me but also the potential to liberate me. And I love that clash of opposites and the kind of tension that, as they rub up against each other because for Ollie, the sea is very much like the place where she comes to find herself um, as a 21-year-old that's quite aimless and not entirely sure where she's going. And so it's very much like, yeah, the place where she discovers her identity and where she really comes to own her story. And then it's also the place where her story is violently driven out of herself. Um, And then finally the place where she comes back and takes authorship, uh, once more of her body and her story.
1: Sophie, I'd love to hear you read from the very beginning of the book, if you don't mind, the section titled Dark Pink.
2: Absolutely. Dark Pink. You dying in your 20s is not romantic, he told me, his eyes dense black, half in shadow. He shook his head. It would be a waste. I remember that we were in my living room at the time and that I didn't say anything back, but I thought about it for a long time after. The word waste, swirling like an oil slick. I knew he was right, it would be a waste. But when I'd said I would die in my 20s, it was never about the romance of it, the old story of the young artist perishing before her time. It was more of a knowing and knowing that it was my time. I die on the eve of the day I was born, 29, almost 30. I've always liked the numbers 29, two and nine, much more than I've ever liked 30 three and zero. Two is red and nine dark pink. Three is uneasy green and zero is empty white. But contrary to what you might be thinking, I don't do it on purpose. Not really. Then again, maybe I do. We're made up of myriad choices, aren't we? I shrug, shiver. It's cold here, on the wet stern deck, on the edge of this decade and the next. Beneath me, it is dark. Iceberg suspended in the grey. It is all spreading, and I look across at Brooke, and she winks, and I smile, and it hurts my face. I hold my breath. Do we choose to breathe? I don't know. I still don't know. I wish she told me the answer. I wish she told me a lot of things, like that when I finally see the green flash, it will be equally amazing and dull. Or that life is a series of words and the punctuation is in all the wrong places and when you want to take a breath someone has removed the comma so you have to take one there and if you didn't too bad it's already gone maggie i wish you told me at sea no one can hear you scream
1: thank you sophia i was really interested in the way you use grammar in this section and throughout the book Could you tell us about this technique?
2: Yeah, so I think when I wrote Below Deck, I was a scholar, a provost scholar at Oxford University, and I wrote, this is my research project. Um, In the two terms leading up to writing my research project, I studied like a number of different subjects within English literature. And one of them in particular, I was studying theory of the novel and 20th century poetry in the same term. And I was looking at the poetry of Mina Loy and also looking at early 20th century writers, women writers who, including Virginia Woolf and Dorothy Richardson, who had decided, I guess, that or we unified with Mina Loy in this sort of common project of having decided that men in the English language had written the dictionaries and they'd decided how we structure stories, how we tell stories. They had like defined the English language through dictionaries and had written the great stories by which we model how to tell a story. And I was really interested in these women and how they were trying to come up with a way of writing that they felt was distinctly theirs. Um, And from that, like I, from that departure, I went down sort of a um, journey, if you like, of looking at specific experiences and how they affect the body. And then from that, how can you represent or articulate specific bodily experiences or you know your corporeal reality? How can you articulate that on the page? And so because so much of this book is about trauma and sexual violence, um, I was interested in how trauma affects the body and how it fractures and sort of tears apart memory and makes our experiences and our recollections of them irregular and how so often those irregularities have been used to make us feel that our memories are inconsistent and therefore we're not remembering accurately. Um, And so I think the sort of conclusion that I drew was certainly from my own experience that trauma was a huge fracturing of my life and of my sort of consciousness and and so I was really interested in breaking up sentences and making um, making sentences in the punctuation that um or the grammar that punctuates various sentences making that irregular to as a sort of visual representation of how this experience affects Ollie but actually on the page and I think yeah I mean I hope that I achieved that I think I think the other thing that I was interested in was so much of the book is about choice and this line keeps coming back throughout the book of do we choose to breathe and Ollie asks this of you know of herself and of the reader and I often you know because we are breathing whether we choose or not um and then you know in moments that take your breath away or in moments when you're incredibly frightened or in moments when you're incredibly anxious you can choose to keep breathing through those moments or you know become acutely aware of your breath and so I think I was interested in taking choice away from readers because especially if this book is read aloud you're forced to take breaths in places you wouldn't ordinarily, um, and yeah, and so I think it was that kind of play with mm. disrupting for the to to represent the trauma, but also disrupting to make people think about the choices that we make and the choices that we can't make because something is happening to us, whether we like it or not.
1: Well, I thought it was really effective and I remember when I was reading that first chapter being jolted out of my expectation of rhythm. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I I thought that you did that really well. Thank you.
2: It was also interesting, I think, because I, um, when I wrote This Is My Research Project, I read the entire thing aloud to my professor um, and that was... It was just something I'd never done before. Like I'd never been reading my work aloud in real time as I was writing it. And so I think all of these experimentations with language and grammar, because of the way that I wrote it and the way that my professor sort of oversaw that process, meant that I yeah was becoming aware of rhythm in a way that I previously hadn't.
1: What a fantastic way to get a feel for the rhythm of your prose. So if let's swing back around now to the story. Early on in the novel, Ollie meets Mac and Maggie. Who are these two to Ollie?
2: Uh, I think so, yeah, Mac and Maggie are this older platonic couple Um, their best friends and I think to Ollie they are very much like the vehicles that she figures out who she is through um yeah I think she has been walking a very safe path um and has come from immense privilege and she's doesn't have or has never questioned that and has never thought to deviate in any way from that path and I think what they are to Ollie is is love and kindness and generosity but also a door opening to another path um, that she readily goes down
1: Mm, and I thought knowledge too they both have this kind of wisdom that they impart on Ollie in different ways
2: yeah absolutely I think um you know the relationship that she has with Mac. I think Mac is very indicative or, yeah, of his relationship with Ollie and, and with Maggie and you know the various women in his life, and also his relationship with the ocean and with the elements and the non-human landscapes around him. It's one of respect, surrender, and listening. And that is, you know, at the entirely opposite end of the spectrum to the men that are on board Poseidon with Ollie later on in the book. And I think their kind of callous disregard for her and her body very much parallels their relationship with the world around them and the fact that they, you know, sailing for them isn't about listening, it's about trying to get from A to B as fast as we can and not reading the wind properly, not... um, yeah, it's, it's like forceful. Um, their way of sailing is um, forcing the boat in directions that it shouldn't go and that leads to the boat breaking and, you know, them ending up in a quite a catastrophic situation in the middle of the ocean. Whereas Mac, he is incredibly respectful <laughs> to the women in his life and that also parallels his relationship with the non-human world around him.
1: Maggie is blind but she and Ollie share a secret sense, they have synesthesia. What is the role of colour in your novel Sophie and how does it intersect with the central theme?
2: Mm. I think Maggie um, Maggie's, as you said is very wise and I think that the greatest lesson she imparts on Ollie is um, other there are other ways of seeing she keeps saying to Ollie um and I think you know at at the beginning of the book Ollie very much has her um like what is it your blinkers on when you're just looking down the tunnel and not taking in anything around you um and I think you know she she sort of inspires Ollie to to look at the world around her and see it through a different lens and I think the the fact that they're united by them both having synesthesia um, is really, yeah, kind of this extended metaphor for other ways of seeing um, and yeah, having other ways of relating and having a different kind of relationship with non-human spaces and non-human entities. Um, And yeah, in order to reorient yourself so that you are not um a being that has supreme privilege over the non-human but rather seeing yourself coexisting with the world around you um yes I think that that's definitely the greatest lesson that Maggie imparts on Ollie but I also think yeah this kind of color um is also representative of, because Ollie becomes haunted by this burnt orange color. Um, and yeah, I, I was interested in how her experience of sexual violence has then lived on in a very visual way in her body.
1: Yeah. I'd really like to hear about your own experience of synesthesia. How did you first come to realise that this was not the way everyone experienced the world?
2: Mm. Yeah, I was actually quite late. Um, I'd never heard of synesthesia before and it wasn't until I was at art school when I was 19 that I was reading about a surrealist artist that had synesthesia and um, various numbers and days and periods of time had different color like strong color associations with them um, and so then I, I guess sort of went on this journey of reading a lot about it um, and learned that because I don't yeah numbers and letters had always had really strong color associations for me but then also the more that I read about it I realized oh not everyone sees color when they're listening to music and also that I, when I have pain or experience pleasure, the synesthesia was heightened. um, And so I I feel touch in different colors. Um, Yeah, and and it was funny because when I started writing Below Deck, I sort of tapped into that because I'd been experimenting with my synesthesia a lot in my creative art, like in my visual arts practice. And I, kind of went into quite naturally writing through the synesthesia and then my professor pulled me up on it and was like, what is this? I don't understand why all these, like, um, yeah, I don't understand why these two numbers have different coloured words or are different coloured words. And so then I chose to actually give Ollie synesthesia and name that so that, yeah, then it made sense for the reader, I guess.
1: Yeah. Sophie, there's something that happens to Ollie below deck during the yacht delivery and afterwards one of the crew asks, why didn't you just scream? In that moment below deck, Ollie experiences a kind of paralysis and then she lies to herself. She pretends that she wants this. There's something sickly familiar about the scene, something that many women I think could probably relate to in some way, shape or form. I wonder what do you think is behind Ollie's inability to act in this moment?
2: I mean, I think it's a very valid response and that is what we are now learning about like this, yeah, kind of more traditional model of people having a flight or fight response. more recent modelling, the freeze um, has, you know, it's been validated as a very um, critical and, like, um, I'm not entirely sure what the right language is, but, you know, a very valid response and a genuine response to a traumatic event. Um, And that there are a number of ways the human body can respond to traumatic events and that it isn't just limited to either flight or fight. Um, Yeah, and I think think because we haven't had explanations for why the body might freeze for self-preservation previously, then that opens up a whole can of worms for the person that has freezed because they don't have a language for it. They don't understand that that is a common and very valid response to have. Um, And I think, yeah, Ollie Ollie doesn't understand why she didn't um, scream or fight back or, you know, she had all these ideas about how she thought she would respond in a situation like that and then hasn't and then is dealing with all of the guilt and self-loathing that comes with that that response. Not always, obviously, but um, that's Mm. certainly her experience of that.
1: And what about when she decides in that moment to tell herself a different story?
2: Mm. Yeah, I think that... I think that was the most, um, I guess that moment was kind of the genesis of this book because I had had a situation in which I decided that I was gonna participate in order to survive it. Um, And I think that act of self-preservation, people who are outside that experience might find that difficult to understand, but Then I was really interested in, for this book, I was like realizing that I had decided or made a choice to go along with it in order to um, survive, I guess, Um, in realizing, like, because I think that it made me feel like I had more agency or like I had some kind of autonomy in that situation and therefore made the severity of it feel um, lighter in some way. you know the truth of it felt less severe, and that that was a co- like a that was a coping mechanism, and and I was really interested in this idea of choice and free will and you know having bodily autonomy, and if something is happening to you, whether you like it or not, can you even decide in that moment that you're making a choice? Um, and so yeah, that that was kind of the the opening question and then the book that I wrote was an e- effort or an attempt to tease that out.
1: Thank you, Sophie, for being so open and and honest in this discussion. The section of the book that takes place on the yacht Poseidon is titled Sea Monsters and the final part in this section is called Medusa. Tell us about the myth of Medusa and how the story is relevant to Ollie's story.
2: Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, So I came across the sort of story of Medusa um, in one of its earliest iterations while I was at Oxford. And I was really interested in this as being a very old um, story, essentially, of victim shaming. um, Because... Poseidon sexually assaults Medusa. And when I think it's Athena finds out because she's with Poseidon, instead of cursing Poseidon for having committed this crime against Medusa, she punishes Medusa and turns her into an evil, um, horrible, ugly, disgusting sea monster. monster. And that's the price. Um, Medusa pays for what has been done to her, and I think with this book, not only was I interested in exploring, you know, the, the nuances of how sexual assault can occur, um, but also the aftermath. And I think probably more um, more interesting is yeah, I guess more interesting is how that assault then plays out and how Ollie is blamed for what happens to her on the boat by the other men that are on the boat, like by the rest of the crew. And she's transformed in many ways from this object of desire to this like repulsive person that they can't even bear to look at by the end of their voyage. And so I think, yeah, it was like Ollie in many ways gets turned into a Medusa
1: sea monster. Hmm. Interesting. Um, there are references throughout the book to visual art to ancient myth. You've just explained really effectively the reasons for weaving the story of Medusa into the section. Sea monsters, but maybe you could talk a little bit about the visual art that appears throughout your book and um, what you hope to achieve by weaving art or or myth into fiction. Mm. I think,
2: I mean, I think probably most obviously for me, having been to art school and trained as a painter, and then um, you know finding my way into writing afterwards visual arts for me has always been a practice that enables me to say things that I can't say with words and so I really like yeah this kind of interplay in the book between Ollie's like internal visual world and the visual arts that she's coming across and engaging with and interacting with and yeah, I think, I think maybe it just stems from a personal love of the visual arts and, and wanting to incorporate and acknowledge and um, sort of celebrate that, that art, those art forms.
1: Um, in the second half of the novel, we meet Hugo. What kind of a guy is Hugo? And do you think Hugo is a good person?
2: I think ultimately he is a good person. Although I wouldn't like to, you know, I don't think anyone is inherently good or bad. I think we're all made up of many pieces um, or many things. And I think perhaps what is good about him is that he's willing to learn and to unlearn. Um, Yeah, I think I think what makes him you know a a role model or or whatever we want to call it um, a good character is that you know when he's called out or called in on something he has he doesn't become defensive and he reflects and he unlearns and then you know grows in a way which I think is um, something that you know. Aj, the antagonist on um, Poseidon, is mm-hmm. is something that he is unwilling to do or to engage in, and that therefore that growth is stunted. Um, and he, yeah. So I think I think mm-hmm. in a, in a similar way to Mac, um, Hugo operates as somebody that is willing to change and is not resistant to change.
1: And although Hugo is willing to learn and unlearn and change, he's not quite right or enough for Ollie in this moment in her life. I think,
2: I mean, I think, like, to be honest, deep down I didn't want a guy to sort of save the day for Ollie. Um, yeah, I really wanted her to come and take ownership ownership of her story again, and become the author of her own story and her own body, herself, and to arrive at that um, at that place herself. But also, um, and because I don't necessarily think that it's true all the time that you you know you can't love yourself unless I say you can't love someone else until you love yourself. While I think that. Um, is, is um, yeah, I guess like true in some respects. I think people can help us to find what we love about ourselves. And I think Hugo definitely does that. But I think ultimately for Ollie, um, the trauma is infiltrating her life in such a way that it makes it really difficult to connect with somebody. And so I don't necessarily think it's that he's not you know enough for her I think that she is haunted and traumatised by this event and therefore struggles to connect, you know, until she comes back into her body, really.
1: Yeah. I guess we've touched on this already a little bit in our discussion, but I was wondering whether you could tell us what Ollie learns about love and relationships in the novel? Uh, I think...
2: I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> um, I think she learns to love and receive love generously. Um, I think that... Oh, no, I do. I, I know. I think that she learns that love that is... I guess whole or pure or authentic like however we want to phrase it I think it fortifies us rather than um making us feel weak I think that um love that you know is strong and steadfast makes us feel unbreakable um yeah I don't know if I subscribe to the notion that you know, we, we want to feel fragile or, um, I, I mean, I, certainly we want to be vulnerable with people, but I think when we're, like, held by love that is reciprocated and really nourishing, it makes us stronger. It doesn't make us feel breakable.
1: Mm. Yeah. As we come to the close of your book, Sophie, how does the non-human landscape, Function as a metaphor for what's happening with Ollie.
2: Mm. I think, I think the non-human landscape functions as a very animate or animated um, and lively entity. You know, it has its own agency. These glaciers in Antarctica, A are you know, changing the topography as a landscape beneath them, like they are active in the ongoing materializations and transformations of that landscape. Um, And so I think the the non-human in the final section of the book is absolutely not a passive backdrop to the story. It is alive and, um, and an active agent in its own right which I think is representative of the place that Ollie finally gets to.
1: The events in the book have been partly inspired by your own experiences, Sophie. You seem quite open about this. Often writers like to hide behind the fiction label, but you don't do that. Why is it important to you to claim this story?
2: Hmm. I think because when I wrote it, I... I think the, the beautiful thing about fiction is you you take it exactly where you want it to go. And so with nonfiction, because I've written nonfiction before, I felt like for this story in particular, that there wouldn't be any closure. There is only this lingering and kind of incessant hanging on. And that by writing fiction, I got to decide what the ending was. Um, and got to take it, or reimagine, reshape and take it to where I wanted it to go. And I felt like becoming the author of this story and doing it through fiction, that, yeah, I, I just had full autonomy and control over the story. And that that was really empowering and powerful.
1: Mm, absolutely. Sophie, do you think a novel should teach read or something? Uh I mean
2: I hope that it does. <laughs> yeah. I I mean I, I don't know what people will take from it. I feel like books are things that we birth into the world and they run off and often and do their own things. Um, and that people will read into it probably many stories that I never imagined they would. Um, because we're all coming at it from our own experiences and all of our readings are informed by everything that has happened in our lives. Um, Yeah, and so I think it's very hard to say what people would learn from this.
1: I suppose I was wondering whether there are specific lessons that you hope people take away from this book?
2: I hope that an engagement with the world around us will be one of the key takeaways.
1: Just before we finish up, Sophie, I wanted to ask you about your project, Cloudy River. What is it and where can we find it? Where can we engage with it?
2: Cloudy River is a story about a couple in an open relationship who move in together and how they navigate that experience now that they're sharing a space. Um, and it premiered at 27th Mardi Gras Film Festival last year and it's now on SBS On Demand, so you can find
1: it there. (laughs) Sounds amazing, Sophie. Really looking forward to watching Cloudy River and seeing what you come out with next. Thank you so much for joining me for this podcast. It's been an absolute delight talking with you today.
2: Thank you so much. they have loved these questions and it was a really great conversation.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. This series has been generously supported by the RISE Fund, an Australian government initiative, and the New South Wales Government through Create New South Wales. For more conversations, please visit byronwritersfestival.com.